This episode was one of the best episodes I've had so far, if not the best episode on the podcast, because the depth of knowledge that Sally brought was more than I was expecting, because I've heard Sally speak, but she went into more detail and more of a big picture perspective with a lot of what we talked about. So I think you'll find this to be highly enjoyable and also will help to dispel any fears you still have about animal product consumption. Now, before I get to the episode, I have uh, an exciting announcement. So I have moved forward with my Patreon. And a Patreon on Patreon, I offer multiple different tiers, and one of them is a research group. So for people who appreciate the research-based discussions that I bring to my YouTube presentations on a weekly basis, you can amplify that experience and gain more access to research documents through the research group. So check it out at patreon.com sbcah. And now on to the podcast. Yeah, and one more thing, I, I used a different technique. I used a Skype interview, recording the Skype call through Skype. And on my end, some of the audio wasn't crisp and perfectly clear. So I do apologize for that. So I'm going to look for new ways of doing this. This was a novel technique, but the, inf the audio from her side was perfect. So you will get a lot of value from this. So enjoy. Hey, it's Avishek, and you're listening to the Stop Being Confused About Health podcast, where our goal is to discover the deepest truths about health, bust myths, connect to nature, and figure out what kind of ice cream we're allowed to eat. So I hope your curiosity is as strong as my sweet tooth, because there are a ton of questions to be asking. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Sally Fallon Morell, you've probably heard her name. She has spearheaded the Weston A. Price Foundation and educated the public about the diets of our ancestors. She is most well known for her book, Nourishing Traditions, which is a deep dive into the diets of indigenous populations. And it also comes with a variety of recipes that are much different than the, the most types of recipes you may, may be aware of. She also is a huge proponent of raw milk, and she just came out with a new book, Nourishing Diets, which aims to dissect what we are truly meant to eat, looking at a variety of myths within the paleo movement. So, Sally, thank you so much for joining me today. It's, it's a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for having me. What is your conception of nourishment? Ah, okay. So, nourishment, of course means providing all of the nutrients you need, vitamins, minerals, fats, carbohydrates. So our diets have to do this or we won't be healthy and we'll be craving food all the time. We'll be binging and so forth. And But secondly, I think that when we eat something that we call nourishing, we actually feel nourished at the end of the meal. We, we don't feel like eating anymore. We feel satisfied. We feel happy. And most of the diets out there today that are being touted as being good for us don't nourish us in either way. They do not provide everything we need, everything our bodies need, especially the vitamins that we get from fats. And we're not satisfied when we finish eating these low-fat, low-salt, high-fiber meals. We, we feel like almost like we haven't eaten. <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of people now, especially people who are conscious of health and, and read books, watch watch videos and so on, understand the whole low fat thing was a huge con. So but just in case people aren't up to speed, what are, I guess, some of the nutrients and aspects of nourishment that you get from animal foods that you can't get from the standard kind of American diet? Exactly. Well, the three what we call the three fat soluble vitamins. And this is what Dr. Price in his studies emphasized so highly. That these vitamins were very, very high in traditional diets. And these are vitamins A, D, and K2. Vitamin A, we can make a little bit of vitamin A out of carotenes from plants, but not nearly enough to satisfy our needs. We get vitamin A from organ meats, butter, egg yolks, cod liver oil, animal fats. Uh, vitamin D, we cannot rely on sunlight for vitamin D most of the year. And where do we get vitamin D? We get it from lard, butter, egg yolks, uh, seafood. And then the vitamin K, which is kind of the new boy on the block, but we're finding out how important it is. And the vitamin K we get from poultry fat, duck liver, goose liver, uh, uh, aged cheese, egg yolks, <laughs> butter, so, again, um, these three vitamins come from the very foods we've been told are bad for us and that we shouldn't eat. Yeah, and a lot of these foods are kind of hard to obtain, too. Um, so, if, first of all, if if you guys who, who are listening, if you haven't read Nutrition Physical Degeneration, highly recommend doing that. You can download it for free on the Internet. And my question is, so from your understanding, how much different were indigenous people's intakes of these nutrients compared to what we're typically typically getting today? Well, Dr. Price uh, said that the healthy traditional people got 10 times more of these nutrients than he found in the American diet of his day. That's the 1940s. And I think the disparity would be greater today because people are trying to avoid the very foods that contain these nutrients. Also, uh, we've changed our way of raising these foods. If the animals are outside on pasture eating green grass in the sunlight, uh, they'll be much richer in these three vitamins than animals that have been raised in confinement. Yeah, that, that's a, that's true. Um, so when it comes to high fat intakes, what do you feel about, say, different climates? Do different climates affect how much fat we should ingest because you know animal foods tend to be very warming foods do you think it makes a difference whether or not you live in a tropical place versus in the arctics where the Eskimos live and how much fat you should eat well certainly in the arctic is where they ate the most fat 80 uh, percent of their calories were fat and they recognized that you needed fat to survive in the cold and everything they did was about getting more fat. Uh, they ate the whale blubber. <clears throat> they um, threw away the lean meat. They wanted the fats from the animals. Uh, so I would say, yes, in a very cold climate, your need for fats probably higher. But that doesn't mean that they weren't eating a lot of fat in the tropics because they had coconut oil, for example. They had pigs, and the fat was the most important part of the pig. And uh, we know that they chose to fish uh, or gather oysters or whatever it is at the time of the year when these things were the fattest, when they had the greatest amounts of fat. So um, 
I think anywhere from 40 to 80% of calories as fat is a pretty good approximation of what you find in traditional diets. And again, it depends on you also. I, I'm a person who, like so many Americans, I was a sugarholic when I was young and kind of burnt out my adrenal glands. And I find that I do just do better if I eat more fats than maybe some other people. This keeps my blood sugar stable. Yeah, that's that's a vital point. Um, so when it comes to so a lot of people have this misconception that Weston A. Price is just a high fat diet, um, the, the Weston A. Price diet. But you clearly just said 40 to 80 percent. So when it comes to, say, grains or other sources of carbohydrates and plant foods, what do you have any recommendations or ideas as to what uh, indigenous people ate that were plant foods uh, to add nourishment to all the animal foods? Right. But first, let me just say, I think the misconception most people have is that the Weston Price diet is a, is a high protein diet. Okay. That we just love about lots of meat. And that's actually not true. We do recommend animal protein in the diet. It's actually essential. But uh, don't overdo on the animal protein because that can be a problem also. At the same time, uh, we found, you know, Dr. Price found that traditional peoples pretty much ate everything that they had available. And in the temperate regions, they definitely ate grains. <clears throat> but only, um, and this is not Dr. Price's observation, but our observations uh, subsequent to his work, only after a period of careful preparation. Because grains, we all know, grains are very hard to digest. And so some people just say, well, we shouldn't eat grains. But traditional cultures did eat grains. But they soaked the grains. They fermented them. If they made bread, if they could make flour, they made a sourdough bread. Uh, they made a sour beverage with the grains, sour beers, and lacto-fermented beverages. So they never just ate the grains plain or even just by cooking. They did a lot of things to them before they ate them. So something like granola or muesli, which is the grains that haven't even been cooked, uh, this is going to be very, very hard for you to digest. The other key point of these diets, they all had fermented foods. They had uh, pickles, they had fermented cabbage, of course, uh, but the types of fermented foods varied from, they, they fermented the bones in Africa, <laughs> uh, and they fermented uh, animal foods and fish in Alaska. So all of these cultures had fermented foods. There are abs There's absolutely no exception to that. A lot of people think, you know, high fat, they, they think of high fat in a very bad way because of all the, the, the press. But I think what you brought up is hugely important. When you add fermented foods and all kinds of probiotics to a high fat diet, uh, it probably makes a huge difference. How common do you think um, fermented dairy products were? Because dairy is pretty, um, not everyone thinks we should be eating dairy. Uh, how do you feel about fermented dairy. Was that a common occurrence? Would you recommend everyone eat it? It was a common occurrence. The cultures that had herd animals consumed dairy products, and this actually gave them an advantage uh, because the dairy products are so nutritious and such a great source of calcium, so these people tended to be taller. And because they always had their food with them, they were more robust. They didn't go through periods of famine. 
And most of these cultures did ferment the dairy foods uh, to make uh, fermented drinks, sour drinks, or to make cheese. So, uh, yeah, these are these are wonderful foods. When it comes to milk, so non-fermented dairy, um, mm-hmm. do you feel like this is a central component of um, an indigenous diet? Because, of course, a lot of people are lactose intolerant, and Wesley Price is is very passionate about raw milk. Well, I really think it's uh, lactose intolerant is the wrong word. They're pasteurization intolerant. Uh, most people who, you know, think I'm lactose intolerant can't drink regular milk when they try raw milk, especially raw milk with all the fat in it. They do fine. Now, there's a, a small percentage that really can't do any any dairy at all, and that's really a shame because dairy is a wonderful food. Uh, I I feel that growing children should have raw dairy foods, and pregnant women should have raw dairy foods. And the reason I say that is because in cultures that didn't have the dairy foods, they did some odd things, like they ate the fermented bones of the fish, and they uh, ground up the bones of little animals and added it to their food. And I just don't think people in the West are going to do that. And the dairy products are a much better way to get your calcium. One of the real problems with the most of the diets out there today, especially ones that have a lot of fruits and vegetables that don't have the dairy, is that they are very short of calcium. And traditional cultures, they made sure they got their calcium one way or another, either through bones or dairy products. So I think the best way to do that is with raw milk, raw cheese, um, fermented milk. You know, your your kids uh, will love raw milk. They love raw cheese. So what a great thing to give them. For all the skeptics out there, what do you have to say about what is the advantage of raw milk versus, say, a really high-quality grass-fed, pasture-raised milk that still happens to be pasteurized. How much better do you think raw milk is? Uh, I would I have to say when my kids were little, uh, we the raw milk that we got was from a confinement dairy. And I think it's better that it be raw than grass-fed. And I know that's going to raise a lot of eyebrows. I mean, ideally, it's grass-fed and raw and full fat. But um, there's a one dairy in California that produces a beautiful milk and then cows get hay and alfalfa. So uh, I think the most important thing is that it be raw. I mean, I just wrote a blog on this I'm about to post. When you pasteurize, you diminish every single vitamin in the milk, every single one. And when you ultra-pasteurize, they're gone, pretty much all gone. And even the ones that you that are still there, what you've ruined is pasteurization is all the enzymes that help you absorb those nutrients. So um, you're basically giving a child an empty food when you give them pasteurized milk. What about cooking milk? Say if you're going to mix some chocolate in there, does that does that do the same thing as pasteurization? Because pasteurization is a very specific kind of technique there's ultra flash pasteurization all these kinds but say you take some raw milk and heat it up does is that going to have the same effect well if you want to heat the milk i would put it in a a glass like a pyrex pitcher and then set that into simmering water and let it heat up that way and you wouldn't want to get it past the point where you can put your finger in it so if it's burned your finger that means you've started to 
kill the enzymes. Okay. Now, someone who's real tolerant, you know, we use milk in cooking, for example. We make a custard or, um, I don't know, some kind of dessert that has milk in it. And the occasional uh, consumption of milk that's been heated like that is probably okay for most people who have a good digestive system. But mostly it should be raw milk. Okay. And analogously, for what do you think about raw meat? Um, there's this huge raw paleo craze, all these people eating raw liver and stuff like that. Um, do you think there's something special about enzymes and, and digestibility of very fresh, raw uh, animal flesh? Well, all traditional cultures ate some of their animal foods raw. I believe the main reason to do that is to get B6 because B6 is really killed by heat. Now, a great way to do that is raw milk or raw cheese. But um, some people, like myself, like raw meat, uh, steak tartare or, you know, um, carpaccio, something like that, find it very invigorating to eat raw meat, and so you can do it that way as well. But I think the main reason that you would be eating your meat raw is to get the B6. Uh, now, you should also eat your meat cooked. These cultures ate their meat both raw and cooked. And I think actually, and this was something that was explained to me years ago, the proteins in meat are actually more digestible if they're gently cooked. But then you don't get all the B6. So. Right, yeah, I can't imagine eating an entire entirely raw meat diet. <clears throat> Did you just say... I don't, I don't think you'd feel nourished. Yeah, I think I think it would be horrible. Um, so raw cheese has vitamin B6 in it. Did I hear that correctly? Yes. Uh, raw cheese is a perfect food. It has all the fat-soluble vitamins, has all the minerals, especially calcium and phosphorus. It has vitamin C. It has arachidonic acid, which is a very important nutrient. And it's a probiotic food. It's highly probiotic. Uh, and it's a wonderful, wonderful source of vitamin K. So... Now, I have to admit that um, in the spirit of full disclosure, I'm a cheesemaker and our farm sells raw cheese. <laughs> but we believe that it's a very healthy food for people to eat. Well, that's great, having fresh access to raw cheese. So when it comes to what – because our modern-day lives are, are just so much different than what people did in the past. I think it's really hard for people to understand how people actually ate. So when it comes to, say – ideas like the blue zones. The blue zones has been promoted as a very plant-based, plant-centric philosophy. Uh, what do you have to say about long-lived people, centenarians, and their fat intake? Were there people eating kind of a high-fat animal diet who also lived to 100, or is it mostly Absolutely blue plant-based? Now, one of the chapters in my new book, Nourishing Diets, dissects the blue zones. And first of all, the author of the blue zones right in the book is describing what they're eating and it's beef and uh, goat milk, which is really high in fat. And what he describes is not what he says as his conclusion. And also there have been studies on all of these blue zones and the studies all found that the people who had more protein and more fat in their diet uh, were the long lived ones. Uh, and I finished that chapter by talking about my husband's family. I call it the Maria Blue Zone because her last name was Maria. Uh, there were so many centenarians in that family. Both my husband's parents lived over 100. 
He had aunts and uncles who lived over 100. His grandfather lived to 100. He had one uncle who was 104. My husband's 92 and still drives a tractor. And this is, their diet is exactly what I'm recommending. Lots and lots of butter, uh, lots of meat, organ meats. They always ate the organ meats and they, um, lots of shellfish. And it's a long life diet. It's a very good diet. So the Mar- this Maria family, they, they pronounce it Maria. Huh? Maria family is this in the Italy, Spain kind it's of in area? New Zealand. New Zealand. New Zealand. Wow. What lo- do you, do you have an idea of like which kinds of locations um, are where people ate high fat and lived long? Do you have any idea about that? Well, the blue zones were a place in Sicily in the mountains. And in the mountains, they had um, lamb, and they, they had sheep and lamb, and goat milk and sheep's milk. Uh, then there was a place in Icaria, it's in Italy, uh, not Italy, excuse me, in Greece, uh, an island off the coast of Greece, and, and they, um, again, lots of lamb and, you know, kind of a high-fat diet. Uh, let's, I'm trying to think of the others. Uh, oh, Okinawa. Now, Okinawa has been touted as this low-fat plant-based diet, but the original article on long-lived people in Okinawa described the diet as greasy, and they have pigs, and everything was cooked in lard. So they had pigs, lots of animal fat, and lots of seafood, and it was a very uh, good, uh, pure kind of lifestyle. Yeah, and this this is crazy because all these places you just mentioned, Italy, Icaria, Okinawa, I mean, from what I've been hearing, are very plant-centric. People are saying that they uh, these places buttress the idea that plant-based diets make you live really long. So what, I, what I'm trying to figure out, where is the accurate information on this? You cited an Okinawa study. I mean, you could also just travel and kind of go there, but how do people figure out what the exact information is on this when there's people saying both sides of the story here? Right. I always look at the early articles because they've done the damage before they've done the damage control and the early articles on on Okinawa. So this is a greasy diet. Uh, Actually, for the one in, I believe it's uh, Sardinia, that study was quite recent. And that they described the diet in that study. And it's just like the wise traditions diet. They had sourdough bread and fermented milk products and Lots of fat, lots of protein, and those were the people who were living a long time. That's what the study said. Not what the book said, but that's what the study said. Do you have any idea uh, what that study was, the, the title or the authors? Uh, I'd have to just go look in the book. Okay. Is, is, yeah, is there a place on Weston A. Price, or are, are these studies in your book? Because now I'm going to have to look them up. Yeah, they're all in Nourishing Diets, and if you just want to – uh, give me a minute, I'll go get it. No, no, yeah, I have a copy somewhere, but I think in the in the notes I can try to find these studies because this is really important information, and you know I think people need to have the right information. Yeah, I think you by cited way, some. By the way, there was a really good study a few years ago on vegetarians in England compared to meat eaters. The vegetarians had more tooth decay, they had more uh, cancer, which is kind of surprising, more tooth decay, more cancer. Um, they had more mental illness. They had more, uh, they needed more medical care. 
and they had a lower quality of life than the people who were eating meat. So, I mean, you never read that study on the front pages of the New York Times because that's not the conclusion that they want us to come to. And you have to realize, where's where's all this push for plant-based diets coming from? It's coming from the food industry because the profit on plant foods is about twice as much as the profit on animal foods. They just make more money if we eat plant-based diets, and then you get sick, and the dentists make more money, and the hospitals make more money, and the cancer people make more money. It's just all about money. Yeah, and the plant foods that are promoted, that are found in every single grocery store, for the most part, are sprayed with all kinds of pesticides as well. So they don't really make a push for clean plant foods. No, so don't. it's it does seem like there's some industry backing behind the whole plant-based message. Um, so, okay, so I think I heard about that study. It wasn't the Epic study, right? Epic Oxford, or was was it? No, I, no, it wasn't. Um, okay. Yeah, I have. I don't have it on the tip of my tongue, but I'll send you those links. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna definitely find these find these studies. I think there was one more you mentioned when you talked about the Maria family um, about some study finding that people who ate more protein and fat lived longer. Well, that was that was the one for Sardinia, I believe. Okay, great. Really, when I was reading the uh, description of their diet, I had to laugh. I said, "This is our diet." Oh, and they also ate lots of soup made with pork bones, so they were eating broth. This is our diet. This is what exactly what we recommend. This is the wise traditions diet. Yeah, I think people really need to travel, myself included, and see how people eat. I mean, last year I went to Mexico and I was fed like a chicken, kind of chicken soup for the soul, but it had gizzards and liver and heart yeah. in it. Yeah. And it's just, it, you it's wouldn't see called. that. Yeah. Oh, the, the other blue zone is uh, Costa Rica. There's a certain area of Costa Rica where they have lots of centenarians, or at least they used to. And again, in the book, he's talking about this old guy. He follows this old guy to the market where he has these two big oil cans. And what does he get at the market? He fills them with lard. Okay. (laughs) But then when he comes to the conclusion, he says, oh, this is a low-fat plant-based diet. So his, his descriptions of how people are actually eating totally contradict the message that he wants to put across. Yeah, it seems like there has to be some kind of bias then in effect, because generally when people are that oblivious to what is clearly in front of them, it's usually because they have this uh, preconception, this this notion of what it, what it should be. And plant-based is a dominant narrative out there. So I think it, it's great to hear that there are all these places people are eating high fat. And I think I think this needs to be cleared up for sure. So thank you for that. Um so what exactly is your newest book, Nourishing Diets, about compared to what Nourishing Traditions is about? What what are you kind of adding to the knowledge base here? Well, well, Nourishing Traditions is a cookbook. Okay, so Nourishing Diets is actually a book I've been working on for 20 years. Wow. I started I started writing these articles about how people ate in different parts of the world, and they were published at uh, on our website, westonaprice.org, and so. What I did was take those articles and revise them, update them. I had come across a lot more information and then put each one into a chapter. So it starts with the Australian Aborigines, which was actually my favorite chapter to write. And I've gotten a wonderful feedback on that chapter because 
we have this notion that the Aboriginal people of Australia were wandering aimlessly across the landscape and subsisting on whatever they could find, you know. And that's what it says on the website, the Australian government website. They were just aimless hunter-gatherers. And nothing could be further from the truth. They had landscaped the entire continent. They had made places where the kangaroos would gather. Every single river in Australia had weirs and dams to make fishing easier. Uh, they grew grains. One early settler described a field of millet that was a thousand acres that they had cultivated with their only with stone knives. So they were actually agriculturalists and they were almost, the animals were almost semi-domesticated because of the way that they uh, corralled them and herded them. And it was just an amazing culture and it was not a culture where they were just surviving. It was, they had abundant food and they only had to work about four hours a day to feed themselves. Uh, well, that's the men, the women worked a lot, a lot longer because they were preparing the foods, but, uh, it's just not at all what we think. We have a, a very, um, erroneous idea of the so-called hunter-gatherer and that he was just like a plaything in the landscape. No, no. He was managing that landscape. And this is pretty much true all over the world. Yeah, I think this, this is a whole new can of worms, but different kinds of techniques and survival techniques that indigenous people use to, to ensure uh, some kind of food economy, food stability. Yeah. And yeah, I, right. I agree. Stability is the word. And, and one of the major techniques was fire. Uh, and the continent of Australia was described as smoky. They were always burning. Some places they burned every few months and some places they burned every few years. It was a great art and skill to know when to burn. But when they burned, of course, the grass would come up beautiful and green. And that's what the Europeans found when they got there. They thought, wow, this is like a garden. This is a paradise. And it's just all natural. It's just, you know, uh, they had... They had no conception that the Aboriginal people had made it that way. And same with the California Indians, the Native Americans in California, who were, I remember in school, they were described as the simplest, most primitive Indians. They were called digger Indians because all the only tool they had was a digging uh, stick. But they had made California into a paradise and cleared all the brush from the forests and uh, you know, had made meadows and uh, created uh, places where only a certain species of flower would grow. And so in the spring, you'd have a landscape of yellow or blue. Uh, they were described as, they described geese, flocks of geese. When they landed, they covered four acres. And this was all due to their land management techniques. And of course, all of that was destroyed by the white man. They had no con concept that they thought that these were primitive people, and they weren't primitive. They were just um, different, you know, they had a different way of managing their land. Yeah, wow. That This just reminds me, again, how little we actually learn in, in a traditional kind of schooling system about landscape, architecture, and all, and all these things. And there's so much knowledge uh, within traditional uh, – there's so much traditional wisdom that that is remains to be explored and brought into the, brought into the light. Um, you know, the, the California Indians to this day are begging the Forest Service, let us burn. We can prevent these catastrophic fires if you let us burn. And they know how to burn. They know when to burn and how to keep the fires under control.
uh, and they ha- actually have started a little bit of this controlled burning. But uh, we pay the price when we don't listen to them because we get these catastrophic fires. So the controlled burning could help prevent forest fires? Yes, it helps prevent the big fires because it clears out the brush. It also makes the land greener and more productive. It helps the land hold more water. Uh, I mean, they, they knew what they were doing. Okay, so, wow, that's that's amazing. So your new books basically, is it's kind of like a cultural exploration plus yep. a compilation of a bunch of older articles that you've revised and updated. But really the purpose is to look at what are people actually doing? So it's kind of like a diet anthropology book. A, a little bit, yes. And it's a uh, very readable. It's not my last book, Nourishing Fats, was a, a bit technical, <laughs> but this is really just a good read. So I did Australia, uh, the American Native Americans. I did the frozen North, the you know, Arctic peoples. Uh, this chapter on Africa is fascinating uh, about their fermented foods, uh, and I did Asia and Europe. And then I have this chapter, I call it True Blue Zones, <laughs> about the blue zones. And the yeah. last chapter is a kind of summary of what the characteristics of these diets were. And then I have some very original recipes at the end, um, so, several recipes using blood, because so many traditional cultures use blood in their food. And, uh, yeah, so they're a little bit different than the recipes I've, I normally give. I think in nourishing traditions, there's some fish head, oatmeal, blood recipe or something like that where you mix it all together. <laughs> I'm not, no, no, no. I, remember no I just described how in uh, the Gaelic islands, the sacred food, the food that they gave to growing children was cod's head stuffed with oats and chopped cod's liver. Mm, right. Yeah. Stuffed okay. cod's head. Yeah, that was their breakfast food. And if they really wanted a treat, they would take a brick out of the wall or a stone out of the wall and put it in there and let it ferment. And then it was nice and gamey. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really like getting, Can you imagine getting kids to eat that today? Don't think so. I don't I think, think they'd would. have to be raised on it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think they'd have to be exposed to these foods. Um, and my ancestors ate cod liver oil, which is what makes this Weston A. Price thing so interesting that there, there were people in India eating cod liver oil. And yes. And I've, I've been, it's been described to me how they made it. They had these metal sheets. And they put the livers at the top of the, uh, they were on a slope. And they put the livers at the top and put it in the sun. And the oil came out and drained down and in, into this little uh, channel. And that's how they got the uh, oil out of the livers. But And also you have a, um, a tradition of eating brains. Uh, brain curry, I know, is something that, that a lot of people in India used to eat. Yeah, I know Fish's Head, where my family's from, the eastern aspect is very popular. Um, I, w- I, did, I wasn't raised eating a lot of brains, but that, that piques my curiosity. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what's really fascinating is how people kind of discover this stuff independently, you know, before the age of Facebook and everything, that yeah. they would yeah. come to these conclusions on their own. I think that makes this discussion even more interesting because a lot of nutrition is uh, about the technical side of things, but then there's the connection side of things where we actually talk about, okay, what how did we actually eat off the land? And it looks like the 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 real the reality is much different than what what we're eating today. That's for sure. Um, well, all of this gets into how we know things, and there's really two ways of knowing things. One is intuitively, the knowledge comes from above, 
And uh, that's how traditional cultures knew things. The uh, Aboriginal people went into the dreamland to, to, to tell them when to burn, what to eat. And, you know, when you go and ask, a, you know, like a, a tribesman, why do you eat liver? Why do you give liver to your babies? Well, they would just laugh at you. I mean, don't you know? I mean, it's just obvious to them because they know it by intuition. Now, we've become civilized, and the process of civilization is the process of losing that intuition. And now we have to learn things by observation of the physical world, otherwise known as science. <laughs> and what I find so beautiful is that real science, science that's not obstructed or prejudiced or hidden or whatever, is confirming these traditional, um, this traditional knowledge that they got intuitively and not without science. And that's what I like to say that what we try to do with the Weston A. Price Foundation is show the scientific validation of the traditional food ways that they knew without the science. And when they, um, when you can validate those traditions with the science, then you, you kind of know you're on the right track. Yeah, epistemia, epistemology, that's exactly what you just described. It's how do we come to know things. And with the, the way we're taught to think, a lot of people feel like we have to study a very technical kind of science that is an obstructed science, I completely agree. But the Australian Aborigines, they were very spiritual people, as you said. And I don't know if you've read the book, um, The Cosmic Serpent. But um, anthropologist Jeff, Jeff Narby describes how they, through their visions, they even saw DNA and chromosomal structures and all these crazy things and described the origins art, of life. Yeah, their artwork is amazing. It's, it's just amazing. Um, now, you lose this. When you become civilized, you lose this. That's part of our journey. Uh, it's meant to happen. And, you know, the goal is to be able to learn in both ways to learn by inspiration, intuition, and to learn by observation, and to to um, blend those together. So I don't know if you want a Bible quote, but I'll give you one. So the intu intuitive knowledge is called the way of the dove. It comes from above. And the um, scientific knowledge is from observation. It's called the way of the serpent. And we're told to be... Uh, wise as serpents and gentle as doves. And that is our goal as, as people on a journey, on a path, on a spiritual evolution, is to be able to combine both ways of gaining knowledge. That's, that's beautiful. I actually had no idea you were so aware of this, this side of things. Because I think when people are trying to be healthier, they do have to kind of connect to that spiritual thing. Because that's, that's kind of like a root cause of of all your actions is is figuring out where where you're getting knowledge um yes yeah instead of just kind of falling into a belief system like paleo where a lot of people feel like okay no dairy no grains very very rigid it's not really the the fluid way of doing things where you rely on the intuitive knowledge from above that kind of just comes in um unexpectedly at random times so Wow, that's great. So to kind of switch topics here, there's one question I've been dying to ask you is this new idea has come up about chewing. How? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for laughing, but it's not a new idea, you know. <laughs> well, okay, In the old days, you were me. supposed to chew 60 times, and the moms would sit there at the table and harangue their children about chewing 60 times. 
course, kids just couldn't stand it. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Well, that already kind of answers my question. I guess it was new to me. People were at least framing it as if it was new. I mean, everything in nutrition, people frame things as they're new. But uh, the, the question is, when it comes to the draw structure that was described oh, okay. by... Weston Price, um, there, there's, I guess, the nutrient side of things where that causes development, but then also the chewing. So how do you think chewing could be a possible confounder? Do you think it's equally important in creating the kinds of broad jaws seen consistently throughout indigenous? And so the theory is that the reason these people have broad jaws is because their food is hard and they have to chew hard food or that's gritty. And this is this is preposterous because you can tell when a baby's born what kind of facial structure it's likely to have. Uh, you can tell by the shape of the head, the width of the face, uh, the the contours of the cheeks. You can tell. And and when is this hard food supposed to come into play? I mean, the first foods that any babies eat is breast milk. It's not hard, and then. All traditional cultures make purees or chew the food for the babies. Um, and a lot of uh, traditional foods are very soft, um, like milk and cheese and porridges and all these things. So at what age do these hard foods come into play? And are you really saying that if you start eating hard foods when you're seven years old, that's going to give you a strong jaw? I mean, just it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. And there's a real... Um, uh, problem with this teaching because it keeps people from preparing for pregnancy and eating the right foods during pregnancy. They basically think, well, it doesn't matter what I eat. We're just going to give the baby some, I don't know, um, corn uh, corn nuts or something or uh, mint candy. I mean, you know, what is that? Is that what you really mean? All these foods have to be hard. Uh, and so the Parents realize too late that they have missed the window where they can really eat properly uh, to give the child the good uh, facial structure. And a lot of that facial structure has to do with vitamin K supported by vitamins A and D. Uh, there are growth plates in the side of the plate, you know, right here. And vitamin K prevents those growth plates from sealing over too soon. And so if you have a lot of vitamin K in your diet, that face will grow to be broad the way it's supposed to be, and the bones will be long. I mean, to say that eating hard food is going to give us a wide jaw, it's sort of like saying if you do stretching exercises, you'll grow tall. <laughs> yeah. It just it doesn't make sense. That's so a very the thorough body, answer. The body has, is built from the inside. We know that when children are malnourished, they'll be short. They'll grow up short. You know, and again, you can't give them stretching exercises and, and make a malnourished child grow tall. It's got right. to be from the diet. Right. You can't just hang from a tree and unfortunately <laughs> grow right. taller. Um, but you just brought up another question for me in mind. So today, people, so many people are nutrient deficient. If someone is trying to conceive and considering how breast milk can become full of toxins and be poor in nutrition, um, how long would you recommend someone get on kind of like a high nutrient diet? before uh, kind of conceiving? Well, we recommend at least six months. And if you've been a vegan, vegetarian, or a real you know, standard American diet, we, we recommend one to two years of getting on our, on our diet to prepare uh, for pregnancy. By the way, I would like to say another 
misconception that we have is that the primitive people lived in a really pure atmosphere and there weren't any toxins in their atmosphere. No, no. These people were breathing smoke in all the time. Their huts, their houses were full of smoke because they cooked on fires in there. I mean, they burnt, they were burning the land. It was full of smoke and nothing's more toxic than smoke. It's full of dioxins and all sorts of things. But they had a way of dealing with that smoke and those toxins and that was vitamin A. And vitamin A is our number one uh, nutrient for detoxification. And they had lots of vitamin A in the diet. They ate liver. They ate the organ meats. You know, they, they drank blood, which is full of vitamin A. So, um, again, we live in a toxic world for sure. I don't think it's any more toxic than the world they lived in. And the same kind of diet will protect us from those toxins. And that's a diet rich in vitamin A and zinc and you know, other cofactors. How does vitamin A, do you have any ideas how vitamin A promotes detoxification? Well, I, I don't know how it does. I'm not, I'm not a biochemist, but there, I think there's something like 800, or, I mean, excuse me, 80 to 100 studies showing that vitamin A is, helps the uh, other body deal with dioxins. So yeah, that, that's there's quite a bit out there in the literature. And we are so deficient in vitamin A. If you're on a low fat, you know, plant-based diet, you are going to be deficient in this key nutrient for detoxification. Well, yeah, I was not aware of that, um, that there could have been a lot of toxin exposure in indigenous people from from fires. But it it brings up a good point. It's, It's one thing to avoid toxins, but it's another thing to have the protection from from eating the proper diet that we're truly meant to eat. I'm, I'm more concerned, um, not so much with uh, pollution, atmospheric pollution, because I think our bodies can deal with that if we're well nourished. I'm much more concerned about the estrogens, estrogenic components in plastics and, uh, you know, shampoos and things like that. And then all the soy foods, too, are very highly estrogenic. So, um, again, I'm sure the body can deal with a little bit of that, but it's pervasive. And I think... We do need to minimize our exposure to, let's say, water and plastic bottles and, you know, how we store our food and things like that. A lot of these toxins can end up in the fat of animal foods, right? How do you feel that has affected, um, I guess, the consumption of high fat animal foods? Well, it does end up in the fat, but the fat's what we need to detoxify these, those toxins. So, but I don't know why we just pick out the animal fats. I mean, the toxins are everywhere. I mean, there's huge amounts of toxins in this, our plant-based diets on the grains and, and, you know, all grains are sprayed with Roundup before they're, um, harvested, unless they're organic. And so I think we have to clean up our act right across the board. I think as far as the plant foods are concerned and, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all for fruits and vegetables and grains and all those things. My husband and I eat lots of vegetables. You want to do your best to get organic. And then your animal foods, we recommend buying directly from the farmer. So you know that they're from pasture fed animals. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I don't think that the, this toxin argument is a reason to go plant-based in fact some toxins are found more high and higher concentrations in, in plant foods and it would be really interesting i've just never thought about this before talking to you today that 
maybe the vitamin A could counteract or help detoxify some of the toxins that might be in milk products that typical Americans are consuming. Um, and of course, there's going to be a difference between that and, and higher quality raw raw animal products. And, you know, there are enzymes in our body that get rid of heavy metals as well. And, and that whole enzyme system, again, is dependent on vitamin A. So uh, also the other really key element in protecting us against toxins is the gut flora. And a good gut flora will keep mercury out, for example. You won't absorb it if you have gut flora. So, again, um, you know, the combination of a nice high-fat diet, plenty of fat-soluble activators, and the fermented foods for healthy gut flora is is really the way to go. And then, you know, a reasonable attempt to avoid toxins. You're not going to be 100%, but you don't want to be obsessive about it either. Don't want to be obsessed about anything, really. <laughs> I think those are some great concluding remarks. Um, I, I think that was a very thorough, thorough discussion on on this issue, and you definitely brought up, cleared up many misconceptions I think people have about Weston A. Price. Do you have any other closing thoughts? Uh, well, I, I do recommend my new book, Nourishing Diets. Going to have to put a plug in for that. Mm-hmm. I have a blog, nourishingtraditions.com. And then the Weston Price uh, website is westonaprice.org. And we have a conference coming up. I realize that you're going to have this podcast up for a long time, but um, our our conference is always in November. And this year, 2018, it's in Baltimore. That's very exciting. And all, all of that information will be provided in the podcast notes. So thank you very much, Sally, for joining me today. And... Uh, Everyone listening, I highly recommend you check out her new book, Nourishing Diets. Thank you all for listening. I will talk to you guys next time. Bye.